We continue on in Romans chapter 8, looking at a single verse today, and a verse that would be worth contemplating and uh, worth contemplating for more even than just one sermon, and one in which I think we will contemplate with joy on into eternity, and that's verse 18. Beginning, though, our reading in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find it on page 944 in that maroon Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, page 944. This is the Word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And now verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen and amen. In Daniel Nairi's best-selling and award-winning book entitled Everything Sad is Untrue, he recounts his story, his family's story, of, of their journey uh, from a devout Muslim home in Iran to fleeing the country for asylum when his mother was converted to Christianity. And 
uh, was uh, threatened with her life. And Daniel tells this story from the perspective of his 12-year-old self. He was 12 years old when this all took place. It's all very strange to him. Uh, one day his mother became a Christian. His father did not. The family was, was divided. And now there were uh, leaders in their village who wanted to kill his whole family. And near the very end of the story of the book, he, he reflects on a time where they were in a, a refugee hotel. They, they called it a hotel. It was a refugee camp, essentially, in Italy, waiting for a country to claim them. So they're just kind of in holding. They've gotten out of Iran. They're in Italy, and they're waiting for a country to, to claim them. And he's highlighting how in that time his mother was the only person in that hotel who was happy, who was eager, and who was expectant. And this is what he writes. He says, imagine you're in a refugee camp and you know it will be a year or more before anything happens, if anything happens, and it's going to be a tough year. But for the person who thinks, at the end of this year, I'm going to be somewhere free, a place without secret police, free to believe whatever I want and teach my children. And you believe it will be hard, but eventually... You'll build a new life. It's like winning the lottery. It's like saying you'll get $100 million at the end of the year. But if you're thinking every place is the same, and there will always be people who abuse you, and you're thinking about how poor you'll be at the beginning, well, then the sadness overtakes you. It's like saying you'll just get a soup and a sandwich at the end of the year, and that's it. Here's the thing. You'll both have the same year at Hotel Barba. That's the name of the refugee camp, Hotel Barba. But one of you will be looking around with joy and anticipation, wondering what you could do to prepare your kids for a new world, and the other will be slumped in the courtyard, surrendered to the idea that it's all one long river of blood. And I don't know which belief is true. Nobody does. But what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. And that's how my mom did it. What you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. So what's the secret to getting through suffering in this life? How can it be that you're not overwhelmed, drowned, destroyed, rendered entirely despondent by the trials that you will face in this life? Daniel's mom learned the secret from the Apostle Paul, that what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. And what Paul says about the Christian's future in Romans 8 is that the Christian's future is so happy. It's so amazing. It's so glorious that even the most horrendous and horrible things in life can't detract from its happiness, from its amazingness, from its glory. Indeed, the sufferings of this world aren't even worth a comparison to the glory of the next world. That's what Paul says in this little verse of ours. And what we're going to do this morning is consider it in four ways. First, I want you to see what Paul is not saying. I think that's important, what he's not saying. Then we're going to see what he does say. Third, how he can possibly say it. And finally, how we can say it too. So what he doesn't say, what he does say, how he can say it, and how we can too. First, what Paul is not saying. This is important, what he's not saying. He's not saying, if you look at verse 18, that our suffering is not worth anything. That's so important. 
He's not saying our suffering is not worth anything. That's about the most pastorally insensitive thing you could say to somebody going through suffering. That all that terrible stuff that's happening to you or that has happened to you, the, the story of your life with all of its ups and downs, uh, really, it's been meaningless. Uh, with all your tears, your, your tales of, uh, of tears and woe, it, it's meaningless. It's a joke. You know, when, when you're going through a hardship and a trial, well, what would that have been? Maybe you're going through one, one right now. Suddenly you've you, you lost your job or you can't find another job. You've lost your spouse. Um, you found out, as we prayed for this morning, um, that your, your six-month-old daughter is having a swelling of the brain and she's not respondent. You wake up one morning and, and your spouse says, I'm out of here. I'm done with you. Um, or you go to the doctor. It's just a regular checkup. And they actually, by the end of the visit, give you a terminal diagnosis and say, enjoy the next six months of your life. What, what suffering, perhaps, have you experienced? You've lost a loved one. Uh, you lose all your savings in a bad move by a financial advisor. Maybe you're in your second round of rehab and you still can't kick the habit. During those moments, there's the way that somebody could apply the verse we're considering today that falls flat and fails to comfort the hurt of your soul. You know, they say something like, you know, they're there. You know, this isn't, this isn't anything, really. Heaven is coming, and it's going to be so much better, so you know, just get over it already. In one sense, we say, well, yes, what, what they said is true. Everything they said is true, and yet... It's as though something is missing. And what's missing is the acknowledgement that suffering is real. It's real. And at times it's torturous. And when we use this verse in that way, well intended or not, it could give the impression, uh, the impression that none of that matters. Well, Paul's not doing that here. And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible never discounts our suffering. And really briefly here, I want to just tell you three reasons why you know from the Bible that our suffering matters. The first is that Jesus suffered. Why does my suffering matter? Because Christ suffered. The mission of redemption was not complete until he suffered. We're told that in Hebrews 2.10. You can look there later. Uh, let me read you Luke 9.22, though. When he told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must suffer. And anything that Jesus, the Son of God, must do cannot be meaningless. Cannot be worthless. The Father doesn't send the son on petty errands just to keep him busy or distracted like we might do with our children. No, never. The father calls the son only to those things which promote the splendor and the display of his glory. And somehow, in some way, the suffering of the son does just that. It glorifies him. It glorifies God. But if suffering is not worthless to the son, it's not worthless for us either. Our suffering matters also because we matter. That's the second thing. Because we matter. Our existence is not pointless. We are made as image bearers of God. We are dear to God. We are delight to him. And as we've already learned in Romans 8, as believers, we're his children. And if you have children today, you know as a parent that uh, it's not only the successes of your child that matter to you. Now, maybe that's, only the thing, the only, that's the only thing you, you tell your friends about and your neighbors about and share on Facebook is, hey, look, they're on the honor roll and they've done this and they've done that. But you know that the hardships that your kids go through make them who they are and it matters to you. 
you are just as excited for them when, they, when something goes well, and you, you are crushed for them when something doesn't go well. You, you care if your kid is bullied or fails to get the job they applied for or is dumped or dejected by their crush. These things matter to you because they matter to you. Well, we matter to God. Our suffering is not meaningless to him, and so we should never deem it's worthless to us. Thirdly, perhaps most importantly, our suffering is not meaningless, it's not worthless because of what God does through our suffering. Suffering is the, the fire in which God produces sanctification. It's the, the crucible where God makes us into the people we're always meant to be. And the biblical authors have to remind us this over and over again, don't they? Remember James when he says, count it a joy when you face sufferings of various kinds. Why? Why should I be happy about this? Because of what suffering does. Suffering produces, what's he say? He says, it produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope never puts us to shame. That's Romans 5. That's Paul. And so James and Paul both tell us that when suffering has its full effect, we're complete. We're mature. We lack nothing. We're never put to shame. And if you've gone through immense and intense suffering in your life, you know that this is true. Some of you have told me as much as you've shared your testimony, what God has done in your life. You talk about all the difficult things that you've gone through, but then you say, and God's brought me through them, and I'm so glad for those difficult things that I've gone through because I wouldn't be the person I am today, and the person I am today is better than the person I was before those sufferings, and so I praise God for them. Suffering is not worthless because it makes us into the people we're meant to be. So Paul is not saying that our suffering isn't worth anything. Because the word in verse 18, worth, does not apply to suffering. It applies to this term about comparison. So what is Paul actually saying? He's not saying that our suffering isn't worth anything. He's saying it's not worth comparing to the glory. Paul is saying that the glory that we will soon experience is going to be so great that it will make our suffering so small, so light, so short, that they really don't compare in any significant way at all. John Stott says that when it comes to suffering and glory, he says they need to be contrasted, not compared. Contrasted, not compared. So Paul is not diminishing the reality of our suffering. Rather, he's magnifying the reality of glory. Glory is greater than suffering, so much greater. And Paul gives us two reasons why, or at least they're implied two reasons as we dig into the text. The first is simply this. Glory is greater than suffering because glory is longer. Glory lasts longer than suffering. Suffering belongs to, as we read, the present time, literally the now time. It's fleeting. It's brief. Our world and our whole experience is marked by it, true enough, but this world is passing away. It's like a breath, a vapor. Glory belongs to the next time, not the now time, but the next time. Not this world, but the world that is without end. Amen and amen. This is not the only time Paul addresses the subject of the longer and therefore greater nature of glory. There's a parallel verse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18 as well. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And I hear you all turning there. Good job. Now I hear you all turning there. Good job. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. 
When you're going through suffering, you're going to be glad you turned here because these are the verses you need. These are the verses you cling to. For this light, momentary, that's how he describes it, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, fleeting, But the things that are unseen are eternal. What's Paul's rationale for why suffering is not worth comparing to glory? Because glory is longer and therefore glory is greater. Suffering is light and momentary. Glory, he says, is eternal. And the things that are unseen are eternal. Glory is greater because it's longer. Secondly, I think we can... I need you to stick with me on this one. I'm going to say this. Maybe it doesn't sound right at first, but we'll unpack it together, and I hope it will be helpful. Glory is also greater because glory is realer than suffering. It's longer than suffering. It's realer. It's more real than suffering. I wonder if I could put it like that. Now, I've already underscored that our suffering is not insignificant, and I'm not saying suffering isn't real. I'm saying that glory is more real. Um, suffering is a shadow Glory is a solid. In in this world, we're surrounded by glory. I'm sorry. In this world, we're surrounded by suffering. Suffering surrounds us in this life. Glory becomes us in the next life. It becomes us. Uh, If you're reading from the ESV, verse 18 says, The glory that is to be revealed to us. As, that it, as though it were a show we were watching. And that's true. It will be. It will be our eternal vista will be the glory of God. But if you're reading from the NIV, it puts it like this. The glory to be revealed in us. And I think that is perhaps a better way of translating it. That is to say, glory, what Paul's saying. The majesty, the splendor of God will literally be something that defines us in the future. Not just something we watch, but something that we become. John writes about that too. First John 3. Verse 2, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see the glory of God, we will partake in that glory. When we see the glorious Son, we will become like the glorious Son. We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of God are being transformed into that same glorious image from one degree of glory to the next. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 3, and he writes later in 1 Corinthians 15, you know the line, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. We will be changed from dust to glory. Suffering, the same cannot be said about suffering. We experience suffering. We become glorious. We become glorious. And when we're glorified, we will be who we really and truly are, are meant to be. Now, near the conclusion of J.R.R. Tolkien's epic, The Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee is reunited after the ring has been destroyed. He's reunited with his old friend and um, uh, grandfather-like figure, uh, Gandalf the Grey, who has now become Gandalf the White. And Sam has not seen him since uh, what he thought was... Gandalf's death. He thought Gandalf had been dead. And when he sees him, he's just elated. 
And it feels like it's been an eternity since he's seen him. And this is what Sam says in response. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? By the way, that's where Daniel Nairi got the title of his book, Everything Sad is Untrue. It's from that line, Lord of the Rings. Is everything sad, Gandalf, going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. A great shadow has departed. Well, this is a wonderful illustration of Paul's point in Romans 8.18. It's not that suffering is unimportant. It is that it is untrue. It will be made untrue. Ultimately, it won't be the defining thing about us. As Gandalf says, suffering is, is but a shadow. And that shadow lifts and glory is revealed. And glory is a solid. It's realer than suffering. The glory will soon be revealed in us. Well, that's what Paul is saying. And now that we have a sense of what he's saying, we want to ask, how can he make such a claim? How can he say it? Our suffering can be so intense and, and so heartbreaking that to hear somebody say it's light and momentary makes us think, well, then you've never suffered. You don't get it. Well, certainly that can be said of Paul. He suffered in ways that are unthinkable to us. You can read about that suffering in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 11. Um, it's not that Paul doesn't have a good sense of how terrible suffering can be. So then the question is, how is he so sure that glory will be better? Well, look at the verse, verse 18. What does he say? He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. He says he considered it. He reckoned it. He, it's, a, it's a mathematical term. He calculated it. He worked it out. He set his mind to it, and he thought it through, and he's come to this convic- conviction. In other words, this is not just a flippant Hallmarkian phrase that, or aphorism that Paul is throwing out there because it sounds good. Here, take this, you know, take this line. Won't that cheer you up for, for maybe the rest of the day? That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying he's become convinced of this because he's worked it out. I mean... This clearly is not something that became obvious to Paul because it goes against all common sense. It goes against human reasoning. How could it really be that the suffering, which is so bad in this life, isn't anything compared to the glory? I mean, we're not in the glory now. How's Paul saying this? And yet he's so convinced. In fact, the verb to be revealed, for the glory to be revealed to us, Paul writes it. He uses a Greek style that uses a past tense verb to, that's translated in the future as a way of indicating a certainty. In other words, uh, Paul is so sure that the glory will be revealed to us that he writes it as though it's already happened. It's already been revealed. That's how sure he is that it will be revealed. So how can Paul be so sure? The answer is the gospel. The answer is the gospel. The gospel is the story of the man of sorrows becoming the king of glory. The man of sorrows dying on a cross, being placed in a tomb, and coming out on the other side, the king of glory. The suffering Christ led to his glorification. That's a glory Paul witnessed firsthand, isn't it? On the road to Damascus. Something that he saw himself. And yet he's considered these things. He's, he's weighed them out. He's, he's calculated it. One commentator says, what Paul is, when Paul uses this verb consider, he means that he has a firm conviction reached by rational thought on the basis of the gospel. 
So Paul saw and thought on what God did in the gospel. He thought about why he did it. And he came to the conclusion, this is just how God works. This is what God is all about. And if he did it for his son, he will do it for his son's people as well. And so he can make this claim. He saw that in the gospel, God sent his son to earth to make the suffering and sad things of this world ultimately untrue. And to make glory and joy the truest things about us. The realest things about us. That's what Paul says. But most importantly today, I want to leave you with this. So how can we say that too? How can we have that conviction as well? Well, simply put, the answer is faith. Faith. We need faith. And by faith, I don't mean a sort of, you know, fingers crossed, bated breath wish that things will be better in the great by and by. I don't mean that. By faith, I mean what Paul says here, you know, when he says he's considered it. I mean a firm conviction reached by a rational thought on the basis of the gospel. Based on the promises of God's word and the proof of God's word. We come to this conviction that enjoying God's glory is always what humanity was made for. And it's the coming in the coming of Christ. We know that even sin and death itself can't keep us from attaining that which God made us for. To share in his glory. And even suffering can't keep us from what we're really made for or who we're really made to be. Do you have the faith of Paul? Do you have that conviction? Have you worked it out? Have you done the math? Well, look to Jesus, friends. I look to Jesus and and his cross tells me that this world is hard. His cross tells me that life is hard, that life is sad, that life is heartbreaking, that life is painful, that life is cruel. I look to Jesus and I see that. His cross tells me that. His cross tells me that life is hard, sad, heartbreaking, and cruel. But his empty tomb tells me that this life isn't all that there is. Amen? His empty tomb tells me that that he's taking me somewhere better. Somewhere more glorious than even the faintest shimmer of glory we might find here on this side of heaven. These words from Jesus tell me I'm going to be there, right? When he says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you can be also. That's what makes all the difference. That conviction, that faith is what you need. It's what I need to make it through the otherwise overwhelming suffering of this world. So that the sadness won't overtake us. Remember, that's what Daniel Nairi wrote about the people in the refugee camp. If you think that every place is the same, there will always be people who abuse you, you'll always be poor, then the sadness will overtake you. How can sadness not overtake you in this life? You look to Jesus. You see the pattern that he set from suffering to glory. You say, when I'm united to him, I'm going to go through that same path. The cross is not the end-all, be-all. Praise God for an empty tomb and a risen and ascended Savior that tells me glory awaits Well, just yesterday, 
our sister church in Hillsdale, Michigan, had a funeral service for one of their members, Arthur. Arthur was only seven months old. And he went down on Thursday, uh, last Thursday, for his regular afternoon nap. And he never woke up. And there was no explanation. SIDS. Of course, most cases of SIDS are before six months. He just turned seven months old. And I was talking with Pastor Hennis Everett at General Assembly about this and asking him how, how he was doing and how the church was doing. And, and he explained that moment at the hospital. He was there with the, the family when the doctor comes in and says there's nothing that can be done. And he said this, the, the father, a deacon of their church, ex-military, he said he'd never seen a grown man in such anguish. He said he was on the floor in the fetal position, shrieking, screaming, in pain. And we wept together, Everett and I, as, as he told me this story. But the part that made me weep even more was then when Everett told me, that was Thursday, when Everett, Pastor Hennis, told me that Arthur's parents and his brother were at church morning and evening worship on Sunday. How? How do you do that? And the only answer is that this dear family reckoned it out. They considered what had happened in their life, and they weighed that with what they see in the gospel. And they came to this conclusion. The sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. They are heading for glory And so they go to church where we get a taste of glory before we even get there. This family reckoned it out. They considered it. They went to church. That conviction is not just going to fall into your lap, friends. That Romans 8.18 conviction. You have to contemplate. You have to search your Bible. You have to learn the character of God. You have to take his promises. You have to see the pattern laid out in the life of Jesus from suffering and humiliation to glory and exaltation. And remember that you've been united to him. And when we're united to him by faith, his path is our path. Peter says it. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Why? So that you will also share and rejoice and be glad when you Share in his glory that's to be revealed. Rejoice when you suffer, because it means glory is soon to come. And this glory is greater than the suffering, and it's so much greater. It's not even worth comparing. You can't even measure the two together. John Newton, the great hymn writer, was also a great letter writer, um, such that many of his personal correspondences have been preserved and they're published today. Uh, Can you imagine... A future generation reading and publishing the emails you and I send. <laughs> hey, just circling back on this one to see if you, you got my email from one week ago. Hope this finds you well and throwing in smiley face emoticon. I don't think it makes for good reading, but John Newton's letters, four volumes, get them, read them. 
In the fourth volume, there's a letter he writes to a dear friend who's suffering. And she's dejected and despondent. And the way he writes to her, the, his kind of pastoral advice is, you need to get a better perspective on your suffering. And so he says, take a walk with me in this letter. He says, take a walk with me, and we're going to go down to Golgotha and see the suffering of Jesus. He says, come, madam, let us leave our troubles to themselves for a while, and let us walk to Golgotha and there take view of his. And, and so the idea is that when you understand all the suffering that Jesus went through, your suffering will seem small in comparison. And that's true, but it's interesting. As they go on this walk, they stop at Gethsemane. They see Jesus sweating drops of blood. They go to Golgotha. They see the cross. But then he doesn't stop it there. He says, actually, we have one more place to go, and it's to the empty tomb. And they get there. Jesus isn't there. But they look up, and, and in, this, in this walk that they're going on, Newton imagines that the clouds part, and we see Jesus ascended in glory. And he says, this is what you really need to see to put your suffering into the proper perspective. It's Jesus in glory. And this is what he writes. He, he tells this woman, he says, now pull out a scale and let us compute. Let us calculate again. Let us put in on the one side of the scale all our trials and all our griefs. Here, I thought they were heavy. Now I find them light. The scale hardly moves. But how shall we manage to put in the weight of glory on the other side? It's heavy indeed. It's an exceeding eternal weight of glory. It's beyond my grasp and power to even put it on the scale. No matter, comparison is needless. I see it with the glance of an eye that there's no proportion and I am content. I am satisfied. From this moment, I wipe away my tears and forbid them to flow. Or if I must weep, they shall be tears of gratitude, love, and joy. Because the sufferings of this world can't even be weighed against the glory that's to come. And then Newton does something brilliant. He says, then the clouds close up again. And he can't see Jesus in his glory in the ascended throne. Well, what will they do now? This is what he says. He says, however, though I don't now see it, I have seen it. And I know it is there. And therefore, all is well. Friends, that's what we need. When we know the glory is there, even if we don't see it, even if we don't feel it, we know it because God promised glory for his children. Therefore, we can say the suffering is not the end of the story. We do not let the suffering of this life overwhelm us, overtake us, or drown us out. We don't let them define us. For we have reckoned, we have worked it out, we have done our math, and the solution has shown that every single ounce of suffering in this world that we experience will be converted into pounds, indeed metric tons of glory in the world to come. And I want to remind you, what you believe about the future will change how you live in the present. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful verse and the beautiful truth that it encapsulates. That what we experience is real, but it's not the realest thing about us. Glory will become us. Glory will be revealed in us in the world to come. And then we will know that suffering was fleeting. Suffering was but a shadow. Every ounce of suffering has turned into tons of glory in heaven. Lord, would you give us that firm conviction? We really, as we've seen, we need to, to think this over. We need your Holy Spirit to, to work in our hearts so that we are convinced of this truth. 
And we have no reason to doubt it. We've seen it in the life of Christ, that suffering leads to glory when we look to you. So give us the faith to do just that. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.